And I started it and like immediately the feeling was so different than I had had working for someone else. I wish that I had spent more time in my college years and early 20s exploring what I actually wanted to do. Welcome to the Women on the Move podcast. I'm your host, Sam Saperstein. In this episode, I'm speaking with Lenore Estrada, the co-founder and owner of Three Babes Bake Shop and co-founder and executive director of SF New Deal. We talked about starting a nonprofit during the pandemic, the importance of community, and of course, her delicious pies. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Lenora, thank you so much for being with us on the Women on the Move podcast. It's so nice to have you on. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. <laughs> so you have a really fascinating career as an entrepreneur and a community organizer, and I'm sure so much more at this point. So I'd love to start by letting our listeners know a little bit more about you. So tell us about your upbringing, you know, being from California, graduating from Yale with a degree in history, which I'm a fellow history major. I'm very excited to see another one out there. And of course, you went on to start a business with a childhood friend. So bring that all together for us and tell us your early background. I'm originally from Stockton, California, which is a small city in the Central Valley. And I'm one of seven children. When I was born, my family did not have a lot of resources And definitely, I sort of saw a lot of stories around me growing up of violence, of poverty, and I I had a very like strong like desire to improve my own situation and to help my family and to help my community. So I think that's been a through line of my whole life. And I worked really hard and and really wanted to go to college. So that was a big focus for me for when I was maybe like five or six years old. Honestly, my late teens to late 20s were a very tumultuous time. When I was a sophomore at college, my, my boyfriend died in a car crash along with three of my friends. And yeah, it was it was devastating. I was in love with him. I was I was so sad. And I think also for the first time in my life, I wasn't really able to show up for myself. And that was something that I was just like very accustomed to being able to do, to rely on myself. So I think previously in my life, no matter what was going wrong or how hard it was, and there had been like a lot of difficulty, you know, a lot of sad and bad things that I'd seen and experienced. And so I sort of thought I could probably do anything. And then when Sean died, I for the first time couldn't work. Like I I was depressed and I, I just was sort of existentially sad. And that was a scary thing too. Because I think I'd always been able to rely on myself to like show up and grind through. And I actually like physically just wasn't able to do it, even though I wanted to. And that was a big blow to my confidence. It took a couple of years to feel better. I had a mentor who is still my dear friend. And she was one of the only people that was able to sort of like see me and sort of be open to the thing I was experiencing. Like she had had some difficult circumstances in her post-college years. And so she was able to relate to me. And I think a lot of times with mental health issues, it's really hard to sort of accept someone's difficulty because you don't see them externally as struggling. I kind of talked to her a lot and I started running and exercising a lot and I, I sort of like climbed my way back out of this depression. I graduated from college and then I ended up like right after I graduated from college or very shortly after my mom got diagnosed with terminal cancer and then I got diagnosed with cancer. So I had cancer in my early 20s and I did chemotherapy and radiation for a year. During that time, I lived in Manhattan. I worked for this long short hedge fund. And I got along so well with my team. They were like a family to me. 
And then maybe a month or two after working there was when I got my cancer diagnosis. And so it was really interesting for me to go through chemotherapy and I lost all my hair. And actually like having cancer was so much easier for me than the period after Sean's death. But I think people have so much more sympathy and are much more inclined to provide support for someone who like looks physically ill than you know, when I had experienced this huge loss in college. And so that, that was really interesting for me because I think there was just like so much more support than I needed even, which was really wonderful. But like people just have a really hard time accepting or like sort of sitting with difficult realities like death. And so at the time I thought, okay, I like talking to people. I sort of made a list of like, here are the, the actual jobs day to day that I like doing. And I thought, okay, I like talking to people. I like community work. And so then I made a list of jobs where I could use those skills every day. And so one of them was entrepreneurship. So I decided to start a business. My mom was living in Stockton still and was ill. So I decided to come to California because that's where she was and I could be close to her. My options were kind of New York or San Francisco. So I went to San Francisco and a food business at that time just felt accessible to me. Like I had enjoyed baking when I, like as a hobby, as kind of a creative outlet for all of this, kind of a low barrier to entry and I didn't have any money. So I did a Kickstarter campaign for 10K and my, my childhood best friend and I used to bake together when we were, when we were kids, we were in, in high school and she had had much more of a career in food than I had. So she, she had actually gone to culinary school and I had a college friend who had also expressed interest in starting a bakery. And so kind of the three of us banded together and had a website and we did this Kickstarter campaign and we raised $10,000 and that's how we started the business. So there actually were three babes is what you're saying. Yeah, originally. We had a Kickstarter launch party. I think the day after the Kickstarter party, the third babe quit. <laughs> she was just kind of like, this is like a lot of work. I have a day job. I don't see myself actually doing this professionally. And so and so we sort of tried to convince her at first. We, we were like, well, we can make it work for you. It can be flexible. You can just commit less. And then Anna and I started it. And then over time, it grew. With your early career doing different things, by the time you got to launch Three Babes, did you feel like you were ready? Did you feel like the entrepreneurship angle was the best approach for you? And by the time you were working on it with your founders, it felt comfortable? In other words, it just felt like the right decision? I wouldn't describe it in that way at all, really. When I started my company, I really was coming from like a kind of a place of like no other options. I was like, I don't know what else I'm going to do. And I started it and like immediately the feeling was so different than I had had working for someone else. I wish that I had spent more time in my college years and early 20s exploring what I actually wanted to do. Because when you graduate and then you get a job and then you're trying it for two years, I mean, it's not bad, but it's almost like throwing clay at the wall and seeing what sticks and like nothing stuck for me. And so you really lose a lot of year, good years of kind of like mind growth and expertise. If I could do it again, I definitely would have just started a company immediately out of college. I guess I hadn't considered entrepreneurship as a path for myself. And that's a shame because I think I, you know, I lost 10 years of like good business starting time. Well, with Three Babes, I would love to know, you know, what are the products that you enjoy the most? What are the ones that your customers enjoy the most? And how do you keep innovating on your products? We specialize in pies. The most popular pie all year round is key lime. But then other than that, in any given month, the most popular pie is the one that people sort of associate with that fruit being in season. So during cherry season, we can't make enough cherry pies. But if we offered cherry pie in like September, very few people would buy it. So cherry pie is very popular during cherry season. Peach pie is very popular for one month. Strawberry pie is very popular for March. 
But if you, you know, sell strawberry pie at a different time of year, it's less popular. So it just really depends on the seasons. Pie is just a very seasonal business. So like during the fourth quarter, we're selling tons. And then during, even in the summer, when you think like that's the best time of year for fruit, it's very slow, like for all retail. So maybe three years ago, we switched to doing more baked goods sold through like the Google campuses, places like this, like big companies that offer meals to their staff because that actually gave us stability. Like that was a channel where we could sell and we can plan in advance. So we can kind of work with the teams there to say, you want variety and you need volume and you want quality and you want to support a women-owned business. That stability allowed me to do things like offer healthcare for my staff and offer career trajectory. A real challenge with traditional retail is you don't have that stability. Like you sort of don't know if someone's going to walk in the door and buy something or not. And so there are lots of things you can do to improve your sales. Was that easy to pivot into selling more to corporate clients or did that really take a lot of changes in the business? Well, what happened was we had a big client who used to order pies every year for the holidays and send them out. And the first year they they ordered maybe 500 pies and the second year 5,000 pies and the third year maybe 10,000 pies. And so we were selling tons of pies to them. And every year we'd have to really scale up during the fourth quarter. So we'd rent three kitchens then we'd run three shifts, like 24 hours, right? And so the fourth year we were planning to work with this company, they had sort of an internal Me Too scandal and the entire management team changed right before the holidays. And so they kind of call us maybe two months before Thanksgiving and say, hey, we're, we can't order from you this year. And that was, it was devastating. We had, because all year we're borrowing on a line of credit and then we're paying it off, making a profit at the end of the year with like this huge holiday season, which is 10x the rest of the year. And so we ended the year with $200,000 of debt. And as a small business owner, you're personally guaranteeing that debt. My business partner and I are on the hook for over 200K. We just realized like this wasn't sustainable anymore. And so we had this plan to over the course of a few years, develop a wholesale program. And we ended up getting lucky. We sort of were introduced to the right person and started selling into Google and then made that work. So that that grew over a couple of years um, until the pandemic. And so pre-pandemic, we had 30 people. And we're selling to many other corporate clients besides Google, but they're our biggest one. And then we started getting some cancellations and I realized that we were going to be in trouble, that like everybody was going to be working from home soon. And so our whole business pretty much was going to go away. And then now we're we're back up at 16. Yeah, it's, it's definitely been tough. So we've talked to other business owners who've experienced such similar things that they just lost their business overnight, basically in March, 2020 and everything, all the orders got canceled. What did you do at the start of the pandemic to address that? How were you able to survive in the past year plus? Watching news of the coronavirus, like for months, I'd been reading just every day, New York Times and sort of like tracking what was happening. And all of our counterparts at our our, our clients were saying, that they that nothing was changing or they didn't have any information. But I noticed normally Pi Day, March 14th, is a really big day for us. That sort of told me that people were feeling uncertain. <laughs> and then I went to a dinner party at someone's house and he said, well, we're about to work from home for one to four months. And I said, oh, I did, what didn't know? And so then I go home and I'm like, okay, I'm going to need to lay off a lot of people <laughs> or at least like cut hours. So I come in on Monday ready to cut hours by a third. We also didn't know at that time like how the coronavirus was spreading. So we, we were worried about people's safety. So we had one person at the kitchen at a time and then they would overlap with one other person for like 30 minutes and then that was it. So we just like scaled way down. So Lenore, at this time, you're trying to manage your own business. You're seeing really the city, the country go work from home, turn remote. 
Um, so it wasn't only your business at risk, but it was really so many other small businesses. And it seemed like you really felt compelled to act and join in and see what you could do for the community. So tell us about SF New Deal, because this is such an interesting model where you were able to tap so many people in your network to do real good at a moment's notice for the community. So how did this get started and what were you able to accomplish? So SF New Deal started in March of 2020. It started when Emmett Shear, who's my college friend, called and said he was really concerned and upset about what was happening to small businesses in San Francisco. And he wanted to do something about it. And he offered to donate a million dollars if I was willing to sort of be the leader and form a nonprofit to get that money out to the community. My co-founder is my former employee, Jacob Beinman, who was at that time a recent college grad, but he worked for me starting when he was 15. And he's been a real ride or die, three wave supporter for years and years. So we started this organization and, and basically we started just buying meals from small businesses, from small restaurants and delivering them to hungry people. We started out by just emailing people, emailing different organizations to see if we could find takers for the meals. And we found, no surprise, that food insecurity was increasing with the pandemic and that people's previous supply, like sources of food were disrupted. So people that used to get meals on wheels suddenly couldn't get them anymore. Or people who used to go to a food pantry now go and there's a line four blocks long because now many people need the food pantry. And I saw this with my with my own small business. You know, I'm, I'm letting people go who I know are in some cases undocumented. They're not going to be able to get government funds very easily. The first thing we did was find some people to take meals. And then after that, we started reaching out to restaurants. And we actually tapped into a network of restaurants that kind of already had worked together during the Napa and Sonoma fires. And so they were just already, they had a lot of relationships already. And so we did that both on the restaurant side and on the community-based organization side. The next day, we, we brought on three restaurants. And that first week, we did about 1,000 meals. And then the second week, we did 19,000 meals with 24 restaurants. And then every week since then, we've done between 19 and 50,000 meals. Restaurant people, food people do know how to hustle. And it's people's livelihoods. So after Emmett pledged the initial $1 million to this, you had other funders you were able to attract to come in, private funders? Emmett pledged the million dollars. That was very important because we were kind of able to come in and say, like, we have funding, we're ready to go. And we use that money to sort of build a little bit of internal infrastructure to be able to make the meal assignments and do quality control and all that. And the first few months, it really was like a desperate hustle every week to try to get more money. Like we had a few people who donated 100K or 50K. That was really important at the beginning because the million dollars went very quickly. Like you'll never find better product market fit than give away free food during the pandemic. You know, like there was a lot of demand and we couldn't meet it all. We worked with the Black Churches, the SF African American Faith-Based Coalition. They were a really important partner to us. So we, we sort of partnered with 18 of these different community groups. But like every week, we were fearful that we weren't going to have enough money to keep going for the next week. You know, it was a lot of sort of fear and responsibility because we, once we got deep in there, we realized that a lot of these people like didn't have another meal coming, which felt so like it couldn't be. And so we we did work a lot with the, the city government here to sort of try to find sources of funds, the Department of Aging Services, the Human Rights Commission here in San Francisco. But in May of 2020, like the turning point for us was we started applying for federal contracts that are administered by the city to feed people. Basically, what we did was we used sort of collective power of all these small businesses to apply for and win these contracts. 
And then we dispersed those orders to hundreds of small businesses, and then they did the feeding. And small businesses really don't have the size or the resources to apply and make it through this Byzantine process to get these contracts. And so typically they would never be able to benefit from that stream of money from the federal government. And so we sort of provide the like getting of the contract and then also the thin layer of administrative support that allows them to actually be able to do the job. That's amazing. You were really able to fill a need food-wise, but also on a business perspective and on a just logistics perspective, making this happen for these small businesses, which is unbelievable. Where do you take this from here? And there's obviously still a need, even though we are returning to what was better and more normal. But do you envision this effort still moving forward and just morphing into a new model to keep helping both the businesses and people? You know, due to these federal programs, it's more expensive than typical feeding. Like normally mass feeding, like a Meals on Wheels situation, the, the cost of the food and like the price of the actual meal ends up being, you know, 2 to $3 and we're paying $10 a meal. And so people are getting a much better meal, which feels amazing to that. Like they're like, wow, normally I'm getting like cat food and here I'm getting an actual meal and this is amazing and people love it. So we, we do hope to sort of set a different standard for how we're caring for the community. I've definitely gotten food pantry food when I was a child. My dad would come home with like some pretty gross canned meat. <laughs> and I think like if you're if you're only able to eat that, if that's what you're being offered for your whole life, like it's there's like a lack of dignity there that's really problematic. So I think we've kind of introduced people to the possibility of having more. Most of the contracts that we've had are sunsetting soon. So we've applied for some more RFPs, but I don't see like the amount of federal money that's available being like it's been during the pandemic. So I do think there's something interesting in kind of making it possible for small businesses to like participate in federal contracts. But more of what we're trying to do is find other ways to support small businesses to make it easier to run a small business here in the city of San Francisco. Can you tell us how growing up in your family, you mentioned you're one of seven children, parents very influential to you. How did that make you the person who you are today, make you the person who's willing to get into these battles to take these things on and, and to do what's right for the broader good? Parents both cared about social justice, and that was something that we grew up with. A lot of discussion of politics, a lot of involvement in trying to help other people. I think I just saw a lot of things that sounds very vague, but like, you know, my dad worked in construction for a while and he always told us stories about this guy, Israel, who, who worked on his jobs and was here illegally from Mexico. And we heard these stories about, about Israel. And then one day I came home and he was staying in our basement for a while. And on and off, we saw this character, Israel, in our life. Things happened to Israel, like he got pulled over for not having windshield wiper blades and then deported. The woman that took care of us when we were kids, when she was a child, her mom stepped on a rusty nail when they were farm workers and died of lockjaw. And then that kicked, like Mary dropped out of school when she was 11 so she could get a job in the fields. And then it just like, you know, it's this, it's this like cascading effect of poverty. And a lot of times the only difference is it's just like someone doesn't speak English and they, their parents don't have an education. And the world of possibilities for those people are just entirely different. Having a childhood where I like saw a lot of different outcomes and was just exposed to different kinds of people was really important because it gives you so much empathy because you just have a broader understanding of like what can happen to people. And I see that all the time as a small business owner. So your husband, Manish Shah, is also an entrepreneur. He's a CEO and founder of a company called Peerwell. So given that you have two children, very young, you're both starting company or working on companies. How do you do it? Like, tell us about a day in the life of your household. How do you just make it all happen? 
Well, I think like with anything, you have to like sort of bring in more resources. You sort of figure out a system, have a good system, and then bring in more resources where the system is insufficient and then try to build more scaffolding. Something that really works for us is Manish is extremely supportive of my just like career and ambition and, and like all the things I want to do. And he really means that. I think I've had partners in the past who sort of said those things, but then actually, you know, wanted me to be supportive to them. And I think... Um, Manish actually is like very supportive in the most important ways for me. You know, we had a night nanny with both kids. We have a, a daytime nanny. We're thinking of getting like an evening nanny now. <laughs> and like we had a night nanny when the kids were born, but like just someone to come and help in the afternoons. And that takes resources. And I think that is not within the realm of possibility for many people. I think unfortunately, in my case, both my parents are deceased. So I don't have support from my parents. And Manish's parents are elderly, so they help out where they can, but they couldn't. I think it's a real limitation in this country that people aren't <laughs> given more financial resources when they have children because um, I'm in the very fortunate position of, of like having enough resources to pay for childcare and, you know, childcare so that I can do things like what, whatever it is that I want to do professionally, even if it's not making the most money. I think also for me, I have like two teams who are, who are very supportive of me. So like my team at Three Babes is the one that makes it possible for me to work and have kids because they're there doing the work and they understand that like, I can't just not be with my children. It takes them <laughs> to make this possible for me too. Well, so I'd love to have some final thoughts on what your ambitions are for yourself professionally, as well as for Three Babes. What can we expect to see from you? Well, hopefully for Three Babes, we'll be opening our space this year. <laughs> We've been working on it for over two years. Um, and the purpose of having that space is just to have more production capacity so that we can bring on more clients. And I think my staff is really looking forward to like me being more present. For myself, I'm still actually running, I'm still the executive director of SF New Deal and running Three Babes, and that's definitely too much. <laughs> so we're looking for a, we're looking for a full-time ED for New Deal. And I think in the future, I don't know, when I was a child, I always wanted to run for office, and I'm not sure if that's still something that I want to do, because I think it's just like you get so much public scrutiny. Certainly continuing to be involved in the community and pushing for a better city is something that I am going to work to do, no matter what my official title is. Well, Lenore, it is no question we're going to see more from you and more great things as you do fulfill those ambitions for the community and for people around you. I just want to say thank you for sharing your story with us. It's been so inspirational to hear the things you've worked through, the way you're thinking about things. And we just wish you the best of luck as you continue to do such great work. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to my conversation with Lenore Estrada. And thank you to Lenore for sharing her journey and supporting the Bay Area community in a critical time of need. I'm so inspired by her work and how she mobilized her network to help others. The mission of Women on the Move is to help women in their professional and personal lives. Our goal is to introduce you to people with great ideas, inspiring stories, and a passion to make a difference. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, review, and subscribe so you won't miss any others. For J.P. Morgan Chase's Women on the Move, I'm Sam Saperstein. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank N.A. is a member of the FDIC.